This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, everyone, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here, and I am very, very lucky today to be joined by one of the great journalists in uh, the history of our great sport of tennis, uh, Mr. Steve Flink. Uh, Steve, how are you holding up during these wild and wacky times? <laughs> I'm doing my best, Patrick. I'm, I must say, I'm looking forward to seeing Cincinnati and the, the Open on television, at least. But it's been a it's been a long five months, as I'm sure it has been for you. Well, we're in the we're in the same part of the world. You're in the Westchester County where I am, and then we had to deal with uh, a hurricane, so we both had some power issues. But we're back up and running. And you know, Steve, uh, I've I've admired your work for for so many years. You wrote a great book years ago, the greatest tennis matches of all time. What was the year you you finished that book, by the way? Because I know that that may have to be updated as we move along in history. Yeah, you're right. I I finished it in 2012 and actually I, I had set it up with a publisher that just in case there was a great match at the start of that year at the Australian Open could we get it in and he said yes and sure enough we had that five hour 53 minute battle between <laughs> right. Nadal and Djokovic when Novak came back to beat him from a breakdown in the fifth so we got that match in and we got it on the cover but you're right that's that's now eight years so in a few more years uh, I, I'll be looking to update it. Well, we're going to keep you busy, and hopefully we're going to have some tennis uh, in a couple of weeks. As you said, Cincinnati, <clears throat> which is normally played, of course, uh, just outside Cincinnati in Mason, Ohio, the Western and Southern Open will be played this year at the same site uh, in Flushing Meadows in, in New York where the U.S. Open is played. And, you know, the USDA has been, been working pretty hard, Steve. I know you're on the inside like I am, and we've had a lot of calls with um, ESPN over the last about six weeks or so prepping for this but uh what do you think of the tact just overall that the usta has taken in trying um to pull this event off in its normal time slot at the end of the summer i think they're proceeding with caution patrick that's what i like about it when i hear about the plans for the french open i shake my head because talking about 50 percent of the spectators or even more than that talking about perhaps a half full press room, I, that makes me very nervous. I think the USTA very wisely started off from the standpoint of we're going to be exceedingly careful here. So they're letting as few people on the ground as possible. And I, I like the way they've approached it in the safest way possible and, and the way they've looked at it from the player standpoint as well. Yeah, the players obviously having some concerns. Rafael Nadal deciding not to come to the U.S. Open this year. Um, Novak Djokovic, he, he's, it sounds like he's teetering a little bit, but of course, uh, he's looking to, to, to win another major Nadal, by the way, if he were to win the U S open would tie, uh, Roger Federer with 20 overall majors. He apparently will, uh, decide to stay in Europe, play a tournament or two, if he can in Europe and get ready for the French open, which as you said, is that now at least proclaiming that they're going to have some fans. This, of course, will be a few weeks after the U.S. Open. So we shall see if that happens. So, um, I, you know, I do want to talk to you about some of those greatest matches of all time. But first, I do want to get into a guy who played in a few of those, which, of course, is Pete Sampras, a book you've just written and has come out this year, uh, Greatness Revisited. And uh, I've been going through it over the last couple of weeks, Steve, in, in preparation for this interview. And, you know, I knew Pete reasonably well, played on him, played with him uh, 
or actually was a captain for him in Davis Cup just a couple of times at the end of his career, played with him in the World Team Cup as well uh, in Dusseldorf, Germany. So I know a little bit about him, but there were so many great insights in this book about uh, you know, what drove Pistol Pete and, and what, what kept him going. What was the, th- the, the thing that struck you the most about him having talked to him, you know, well after he'd retired from winning his last, his 14th and final major at the U.S. Open? Well, I still think he has, Patrick, that very clear, that clarity of mind and purpose and kind of understood what he was out there and trying to accomplish. And I, I, it, now that it's been 18 years since he played, coming up on 18 at the U.S. Open when he played his last match and beat Agassi in the finals of the O2 U.S. Open, I wouldn't say that he said anything that shocked me. I just liked the thoughtfulness that he had and the perspective he had after nearly two decades had passed. And I particularly liked what the other players had to say about him, the likes of Rafter and even Isovich and Novak Djokovic himself. And I thought that was a lot of fun to bounce off there. I would often go back to Pete with what they had said and mm. get his reaction to that. And it was, I, I thought the reverence that all of these people showed for him was extraordinary. Not surprising, but absolutely remarkable. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought that part about Novak Djokovic, they played in a little, a little fun match, charity match out at Indian Wells at the BNP Paribas Open a number of years ago. And Novak talked about in your book how he would, you know, ask Pete for, for advice. And, and Novak is sort of a, you know, a deep thinker. And he even admitted in, in your book and in, in talking about Pete that, you know, maybe he thinks about things a little bit too much. And, you know, he's always trying to put in the perspective his place in the world where, you know, Pete, as you said, was very clear minded about what he wanted, what he wanted to do. Um, and he what was the advice do you think that was that came across that was the most important that Djokovic took from what Pete said to him? Well, I think he understood that you got to it very well there, Patrick. But I think what he understood was try to keep things simple. Don't get too mixed up in the politics of the game. He understood that Novak had a responsibility with his role with the ATP, but he was basically seemed to be saying to him, don't get too carried away with too many other matters. If, you're, if your goal is, is history and making your mark that way and making the most of your, your opportunities, don't, don't complicate things. And I think Novak really took that to heart. I, I, I was very impressed with the way that Novak spoke about Pete and their various conversations through the years. You know, um, this is a story that I haven't, I haven't, I don't even know if I've told it on air, um, but I'm going to tell you because you will get it as well as anyone uh, having written this book on Pete Sampras again called Greatness Revisited. Uh, I spoke to Pete the day after that final U.S. Open. I was, I had just recently become the Davis Cup captain. And uh, I always kept in touch with, with Sampras and Agassi, even though at that stage of their careers, Davis Cup was, was not a high priority. But I always communicated with them before, you know, the next upcoming match. So we had a match, you know, a week or so after that U.S. Open. And, you know, I reached out to Pete when he ma- after he'd made that run. And I, f- I reached him the next day. He had already flown back to California. He flew back basically right after the match that night. Um, on, on a private jet back to L.A. after winning uh, that, that title over Agassi. And um, I just said, listen, Pete, you know, congratulations, obviously, but, uh, you know, I just want to talk to you about Davis Cup and if you're of any interest, et cetera, et cetera. You know, just to, out of respect, right, more than anything else. And he said, sure, to, sure. And, and he said to me, you know, knowing that he probably wasn't going to play. 
And he said to me, you know, Patrick, he said, uh, I think I might be done. I think I might be done. Because I was thinking about it on the plane. And I know he talked about it in your book, and he's talked about it before, like some of those, you know, legendary athletes, Sandy Koufax, et cetera, um, and others sure. that sort of walked away from the game. And uh, it seemed like he just knew it. At that moment, he said, I think I'm done. And it turned out he was done. That's a great story, Patrick. And I, I think, but I, what I like about it is that he didn't make the rash judgment then. It was so emotional. He, he was still brimming with emotion, layers of emotion after winning that O2 Open. Because as you know, he had a long drought, 33 tournaments without winning one after the 2000 Wimbledon all the way to the 2002 US Open. So it was so gratifying. But he took so much time making the final decision. What he said to you proved in the end to be true. Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I think it was very wise not to just decide then and there, I've had it, I'm leaving, I won the Open, this is good enough. He waited really well into the next year and then, of course, had the retirement ceremony out at the U.S. Open, fittingly, back on the same court mm. with his wife and his first son. And that was, it was a nice celebration. Very, very smart. But that's a great story that he... You just told. Yeah, and he was thinking about it. I know playing, I remember that next year when Indian Wells came around, which was in March, and the following year he was kind of debating whether or not to play again and maybe come back and play Wimbledon one more time. One of, one of the, the worst things I ever saw as a tennis fan was watching him lose to George Bastel at Wimbledon. You know, you see, it, it, it almost like right now, you know, in a year or two, watching Federer go out and lose to like a qualifier, and I, I believe it was on court. Wasn't it on court two? The old, the old graveyard. It sure court? was. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Know, and yep. and I remember thinking, you know, as I was reading your book, Steve, thinking to myself, I remember that summer because I had just started my broadcasting career. I was doing a lot of television that summer. Um, you know, leading up to the U.S. Open, I, I remember actually talking to Paul Anacone, who was Pete's coach, and a lot my old doubles partner, by the way. And I remember saying to him after he lost in Cincinnati to somebody, I said, man, I said, he's got to switch rackets, you know, because I know he'd been thinking about, you know, going to the bigger frame. He had that old trusted Wilson that he, he always had in his hand. A little bit like what Federer did, remember, a couple, number of years ago. He finally made the switch to a bigger frame. And, and I said, Paul, right. I said, this is not going to happen, man. I mean, he's not, he goes, well, he thinks he can. He thinks he can pull it off. You know, we've tinkered with his other racket, but he doesn't want to do it. And it, it sort of it brought home to me when he went and finally won that Open. You know, sometimes the, the all-time greats they they get it at a certain level that the rest of us just don't, don't they? Absolutely. And you know, I remember at the time I didn't really talk to him about this with the book, but I remember hearing at the time that well, it was sort of colored in by what Paul Anacone said about. Pete calling to get immediately that day to get him to come back and coach again because Pete had been working with, as you know, with Tom Gullickson for a right. while and then Jose Higueras. Right. And that was to just hear a new voice. Then he realized it was really the old voice that he needed to hear, and that was Anacom. Mm -hmm. But I remember uh, he that was a sign, that, and he called his trainer right away. And I remember thinking, I remember Charlie Bricker. You knew him, the reporter from sure. Florida. Absolutely. And Charlie was Charlie was very Charlie was very. After the Bastel match, he was like, he's done. He's mm -hmm. had it. And right. I remember saying, Charlie, you don't, you don't understand this guy. You can't write him off that quickly. And, and then that's why I think it was so satisfying for Sampras to prove all of the Charlie Brickers wrong. Not to pick on Charlie because there were so many writing him off, but that's yeah, what I think was made me. that last. Including me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think there's any way yeah. this guy could. But there was a great NBA coach who said, um, never underestimate greatness. You know, that they can, they, yeah. you can somehow find it again. And, you know, I learned that 
a little bit from my brother playing, you know, and you covered him as well, playing doubles with him and, you know, winning the Paris Open one year that we won it and seeing his intensity. He was going through own, his own rough thing with his, his, his divorce from his first wife. And I just remember, like, his, his focus, his, his intensity. And even though I was, a, you know, a good professional player and was around, you know, professionals my whole life, there's just there's a little X factor. And I think um, Pete had that to a different degree as well where he just – I remember hitting with him one day, Steve, after he'd won one of his Wimbledons. I forget which one it was. Um, and it was a couple of weeks after he'd won Wimbledon. It was the first time he hit. We were hitting in New York. And he hadn't picked up a racket since he won Wimbledon. And it was probably 10 to 14 days after he, he, the Wimbledon match ended. And he was just smoking the ball, hitting the ball unbelievable. And I said, geez, I said, man, I said, I mean, you haven't hit a ball since Wimbledon because it's amazing what confidence can do. You know, when you when you win it, you're just flying high. And he had that aura about him, didn't he, that he just knew that in a lot of ways, and he talked about this in his book with you, that he just knew that in a lot of ways he was just better and just a better athlete than a lot of the guys he was going up against, including his rivals, Agassi and Courier. Yeah, it's so, it's just a fascinating thing about him, Patrick, and you described it well there, and how he picked up the racket again, and it was like as good as gold. But I think he had this this deep inner belief that maybe even exceeded your brothers or Borg or any of the great players, even Federer, that if he was at his best and everything was right, no nobody was going to beat him. It wasn't arrogance either. It, he, it was demonstrable, and it happened so many times. And I believe the story you're telling might have been after that great 99 Wimbledon when he maybe mm. played the best match of his career to beat Agassi in the finals because I somehow have this re- recollection of your telling that story once before but it yeah it, it, was it, maybe it, it was a, he, it was like three four and two the final right it just 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 three, just three four and five the, three, it, four it and five. seemed like three four right. and two but the last that Agassi <laughs> right. hung in there for a while right. Right, but right. uh yeah that and what and that was that was unfortunate summer for him Patrick because he after you had your practice with him, he went on a tear and he won Los mm. Angeles over Agassi. He won Cincinnati. He won. He was he was rolling and he had and and wins those tournaments. Finally, lost one match to Spadia where he had to retire, but he came into the Open brimming with confidence. And that's when he hurt his back. Right. Practice with right. Keratin and he couldn't play the '99 Open, which mm. he almost surely would have won but uh that that was a great that could have been a magnificent summer for him yeah it's so interesting to look back and 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 hear him talk about you know when he was a teenager and you know john austin who coached him for a time i actually remember playing doubles with pete at um one of the summer tournaments and i remember him just basically not even caring like when we were playing and it sort of brought me back to that. Cause I was like, what's up with this guy? Like he doesn't even, you know, give a, you know what about this doubles match. And, and of course at that point he really didn't. Right. But it was, it was the evolution of how that all turned and how he became so obsessed with winning when early on it was like, yeah, I can kind of take it or leave it. And he talks about that in his, his book. And I think going to Florida and living with Courier and seeing, you know, the way Courier went about his business. But, but talk to me, Steve, a little bit about, you know, in speaking to Pete, that, that transformation, that habit. Because I find that fascinating that he, he could go from a guy who, you know, really didn't worry that much about the wins and losses to a guy who literally became obsessed with winning majors. And then that one year I followed him in Europe when he was, you know, chasing down year end number one, you know, for that final time to break Connors, record, how that transformation happened. 
Yeah, that was 98 you're referring to, which was, again, maybe one of his great records doing the six years in a row at number one. But I think he had to grow into it, Patrick. And I went back to him and I said, I'm glad you noticed the John Austin story, but John was coaching him when he was young and he just wasn't ready yet at 17 to be competing hard every day. And he played a really good match and then followed it with a dismal performance in, in John's eyes. And John read him the riot act and mm. And Pete said something to the effect of, well, look, I'm, a, I'm Greek. I'm a lover, not a fighter. And I went <laughs> right. back to Pete with that story, and he laughed. He laughed because that's not really the way he normally talks. But he said, look, I told John I, I was too young. I wasn't ready yet. But it, sometimes it takes longer for it to, to happen. It takes longer to develop. I think he knew that he would eventually find that formula. And as you know, Patrick, he eventually became w- one of the great competitors. I mm-hmm. think that side of him is terribly underrated because they oh we we only talk about his talent but the, the temerity was there the ability to the courage match above all was what i think showed that the way he at the 96 open when he saved when he threw up on the court and eventually saved a match point and won it in the fifth set tie break but that was sheer grit and so it, it wasn't always as easy as it looked and he, he talks about that in the book you know i went back to i was working for cbs that year when i was just starting out in broadcasting and i was also at espn but cbs was covering the u.s open at that point and um i had gone back because they had given me the night off um that or the end of the day whatever i can't remember what day it was i think it was a weekend wasn't it when he played Correggio? wasn't it like labor day weekend I think it was like when no. They, that one was actually on. A, it was on a. Was it, it was night the quarters. That was actually on a Wednesday. It was that a was Wednesday. A, yeah, it okay. went into the night. So it what went happened, into the went, night. Yeah, started went, late afternoon. Right. Went day into night. So Pat O'Brien, who was our host in CBS, and he was sort of became a mentor to me when I was first starting out in TV. So he used to help me out with, um, you know, looking at the camera, do this, don't do that. So he actually called me. I was home. I was like, oh, I finally got a night off. This is great. He said, you need to come back right now. He goes, you need to come back. You need to be on the air to talk about this match. And it was a Sampras Correggio match. So I got back in my car, raced back out to Flushing Meadows and got there because this was, you know, this an unbelievable moment that happened. And then, of course, he goes on, you know, recovers quickly, goes on to win, win the Open yet again that year. Unbelievable. One of the all-time matches at the Open. It was. I mean, obviously, not, not so much in terms of quality, but in terms of drama and I mean, it was, you know, the, the, the idea that he got sick on the court, he hadn't really had enough to drink or eat before the match. There were a lot of factors there, but I don't think he's ever had a crowd, Patrick. You missed part of it, obviously, as you were driving back, but I don't think I've ever seen a crowd come round to him with the passion and fervor that that one did and chanting his name, Pete, Pete. I mean, they, they really played a, a pivotal role in, in him coming out of that match in addition to just his own courage and character. That was a, that was a remarkable afternoon and evening. I remember when uh, Sampras beat Peeline in the U.S. Open final, and uh, the fir- yep. the first point of the of the final, Steve, he hit a serve, which in those days would be the equivalent today of hitting it like you know one forty five. He hit a serve one twenty six, which was like huge. Okay, it was a huge serve. And it was the first serve out of the block, okay, the first point of the match. And I remember seeing him, you know, and he, he destroyed Peeling in straight sets. He beat him in Wimbledon final as well at one point. And uh, I remember saying to him, man, Pete, I said, you came, like, you came ready to go on that first serve. And he looked at me and he said, I just wanted to let him know what was coming. 
<laughs> well, you know, he made, Patrick, that was, he made a habit out of that with he a did. lot of guys, too. He did. Yeah. And that move that you described, the 126 down the tee, mm-hmm. he started off a lot of big matches with that at, to send that signal. And, and often it would be an ace. I mean, you're, no doubt about it. He was being truthful with you on that comment. Now, let me ask you this, because uh, one of my ideas, and you'll be a perfect guy to play this off, one of my ideas for, as I continue this podcast, okay, and you brought it up, okay, sort of earlier in our conversation, is the, the, the matches that we could never see, okay? So my first, I just want you to know right now, Stephen, maybe I'll have you on to discuss this. The first match that I'm going to put out there is going to be Rafael Nadal, versus Bjorn Borg, French Open final, you determine the technology that's at hand for both players, okay? So that, that is a, 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 I'm going to preface that or uh, go forward with this to you because you mentioned it. Pete Sampras said to you, if I play my best, I'm going to beat anyone, all right? So Wimbledon center court finals, Pete Sampras versus Roger Federer. Okay, now you can you you want to tell me it's the grass when Federer played or the grass now when you know it's more of a baseline game. Let's let's start off my next edition of my podcast right now. Sampras versus Federer. Who wins? Well, I I, I think it it goes down to the wire. I I, I don't think we're going to see many breaks. <laughs> I'd say we'd see three. I I would bet we'd see three of the sets at least settled in tie breaks, maybe four. Okay. And it might be something like the, the Djokovic Federer final that we had this past year. But in the crunch, I'm, I'm going with Pete to win that match because I think under pressure, if you look at Roger, not to knock Roger, anybody who wins 20 majors. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And, 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 and his first one was 2003 and his last one, I mean, it, he, he's just, the, the span of his greatness is extraordinary. But I just feel like if you look at Roger losing three matches to Novak, from double match point up. Mm-hmm. Two at the U.S. Open in 2010 and 11, one more last year at Wimbledon. Two of the three matches, he actually had the match points on his own serve at 40-15. And that's not to knock him because Djokovic is a, a highly underrated competitor, but I don't think that happens to Pete Sampras. I, I, so I would take him in that center court final. Interestingly enough, that's a chapter in the back of my book that you probably noticed, was imagining Sampras playing mm-hmm. Djokovic, Federer, yep. and Nadal. And, and many people weighed in, Patrick, uh, uh, including your brother and many. Uh, and Pete came out of those series really quite well. And he talked about the comfort he had playing Roger in those exhibitions. I think they would have had a phenomenal series. It's a shame we only saw the one match at Wimbledon that went to 7-5 in the fifth for Roger back in 2001. It's too bad that was the only time. So it sounds uh, like, I think it, it, yeah, yeah, it sounds like from your response you think I'm onto something. Because I think this could be a lot of fun. You know, to be, debate. This, oh, it would be yeah. great fun. It's yeah. a great idea. Yeah, because I like the idea. I mean, of, it, uh, you know, because I, I kind of would break it down this way very quickly is Sampras, um, Federer, you know, if you go back to the grass the way it was when Pete played, which was lower bounce, you know, quicker, yep. balls quicker. I, I definitely give the edge to Pete in that department just because of his firepower, obviously his movement. He's not as consistent as, as Roger. 
and he's and he doesn't return as well as Roger, but he hits the ball, I would say, a little bit bigger, you know, comparatively. Now, if you tell me that they're going to play on a, a grass court like it is now, where there's more rallies, uh, the ball's in play a little bit more, then I'm going to give the edge to Federer. Even the U.S. Open, by the way, where the balls, if you, you go back to those days when Pete was bombing 126 and it seemed super fast, that's because the balls were faster and the courts were faster. So even there, you know, basically, I guess what I'm saying is on a quicker court, I'd give a slight edge to Sampras because of his power and his serve. His serve, even though Federer's serve is great, Sampras's serve was greater, it was better. Federer's all court game is a little more solid. He's more versatile from the backcourt, but not quite as powerful off the forehand, even though he's got a great forehand, and definitely better, uh, I think, with Federer off the backhand wing. Yeah, all 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 valid. I do think that Pete is better at the net. I would give him the edge on the volley, and so and I also would just say this, Patrick. I never forget in '99 that we played on a relatively. It was a slower court at the year-end ATP Finals, and in the middle of the week, and that's when he'd been out with that injury lingering from the Open, and just played once in the fall. And they play at the year-end championships. He and Agassi, and he gets killed the first time right. in straight sets in the round robin. And the court was pretty slow, and we wondered whether it didn't suit him. And then he came back and beat Agassi decisively in a straight set best of five final. So I honestly feel that that even in slower conditions, he wouldn't have compromised that much. He would have just not come in as much, served mm-hmm. and volleyed as much on his second serve. But I still think he would have put people like Roger and Rafa and Novak under pressure that they're not seeing from the others, right? That's what would have made it so interesting, mm-hmm. even in the slower conditions, to see how he might have still imposed himself and how would they – have reacted it would have been really fascinating to see it all right well we're going to do that again steve and um before i let you go because we've already gone you know 25 minutes and uh it's been awesome and i want to just tell you 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 knew okay when you agreed to do this podcast with me that i was going to tell this story okay because i know you know it's coming and the story is this (laughs) okay steve flink is a tennis um purist and when you're a tennis purist, okay, everybody, that means you got a lot of class, all right? And that means, and I'm saying this with all the love and positivity that I can muster, that means that um, you, 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 you get it. You get the history of the game and the tradition of the game, okay? So Steve Flink, ladies and gentlemen, whenever he gets, I don't know if this is still the case, but it's been the case because I've seen you, how many times have I seen you on the way to Australia? When we're making our way down under. Well, how about, how about Wimbledon as well? Wimbledon as well. And every single time, ladies and gentlemen, that Mr. Steve Flink gets on an airplane, suit and tie. Suit and tie. We're talking old school. I mean, I look forward, I look forward to that trip every year, Steve, going to Australia, especially since I've had kids, okay? I look forward to oh, I, I can chill. You know, I can relax. I'm going to put my sweats on. I'm going to bring my book. What's the latest Steve Flink article I got to read on tennis.com, etc. <laughs> I'm going to catch up on all the stuff that I want to do, and I'm going to put my sweats on and my T-shirt, and I, I feel like such a bum when I see you going old school and all good with the suit and tie. Tell me how that started and why. Influence, probably influence of my father, who was a very natty dresser, and I just was comfortable with it, Patrick. I felt like I was, I kind of, the trip to Australia or Wimbledon is the start of my, my work. Mm-hmm. I'm heading over to do my work. Right. So out of, that's sort of my respect for the game. And I, 
I don't do it to show off. I mean, some of my colleagues wear their suits, some don't. But for me, it's really comfortable. I've never really been happy putting a tuxedo on. But I love the sports jackets and blazers and dressing that way. And, and, and I'm just comfortable with it. I long for the day when I can see, see Mr. Steve Flink again in the suit and the tie, and that means we're all going back to work and the world is back to some sense of normalcy. Don't we look forward to that, Steve? Oh, do we ever. Do we ever, Patrick. I look forward to it as well. And I, I think that, that your listeners are also aware, those who've seen you on, who've seen you on television, that you're, you dress remarkably well also. <laughs> Listen, coming from you, that you just made the podcast right there, Steve. So thank you so much for doing this for me. And uh, great job on the book. Pete Sampras again. Uh, and, and he goes on, Steve does, to call him the greatest uh, American player. I can't argue with that. And uh, Pete Sampras, an all-time great. You, Steve, of course, you're in the Tennis Hall of Fame. Maybe one day you can you know, work a little magic, see if you can get me in there. It's certainly not, not going to be because of my playing <laughs> career, but maybe you know my broadcasting, et cetera. Who knows? Maybe because of my podcast career. You never know. Let me see what I can do, Patrick. <laughs> but it's always, a, it's always a lot of fun to talk tennis with you, and thanks so much for having me on. The one and only Steve Flink, everyone. Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.